So let's pray together. Father, for this time we have together, we are grateful and we commit it to you. Thank you for even providing uh, the safety that we had on the the way here. Thank you for uh, this place and for Brent and Beth and their um, willingness to host us and to serve us by uh, through the meals and through the use of this space and uh, for their ministry. Thank you for uh, Mr. Fred and Mr. Gary as their uh, as Gary comes up tomorrow for these guys who have served our church and served your people around the world for uh, many years. We're glad to sit under their teaching for these couple of days. Uh, Thank you for Aaron and Jonathan uh, using their uh, days to come up and be with us as well. Lord, thank you for your word that uh, does guide us, does um, inform our lives inform our world, and uh, Lord, we, we pray that we'll be informed uh, by you and about you for these few days, and not just informed for the sake of head knowledge um, or, or even just for the sake of, of doing something Christian-y while we're on break, but uh, for the purpose of having our minds and our lives transformed by the truth. So, Lord, um, I know for me, this time is special. Uh, this, these people are special. This opportunity is special. Lord, let it be special um, for the right reasons, and let it be uh, special for all of us because we've encountered you. So we pray you'll meet with us. We pray that we will respond in worship appropriately to you. Uh, help us now as we look to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Since we're going to spend a good part of the next few days thinking about, uh, about God, about who God is, about what God is like, uh, we're not necessarily going to, to all pick various attributes of God, uh, but I do want to talk here from the outset about an attribute of God and why I think it is particularly comforting. And that is the idea of God's omniscience. The fact that God uh, knows all things. Uh, and, and not just to be impressed by God's knowledge of everything, but to be comforted by God's knowledge of everything. And I want to actually start somewhat... Um, in, an, in an unorthodox sort of way. And I want to read a couple of pages from a book that I read recently. Uh, and some of you were discussing these books, I've heard. But uh, this is from Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Alright, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Now, I'm going to... Some of you are going to be very familiar with this. 
Some of you are not going to be very familiar with this, so I'm going to um, spoil it, and I'm going to give you some of the background. So, Harry Potter, in this book, is a uh, 15-year-old wizard in training, and he is um, both being pursued and, in some sense, pursuing the Dark Lord, Voldemort. And, uh, and he has just, in the section we're about to read, he has just had this um, uh, really horrifying experience where he has, has dreamed himself to be a snake and to do this, uh, this horrible damage to his friend Ron's father, uh, nearly killing him. And so Harry is just really concerned that maybe he's being used by Voldemort, but of course, Harry, throughout the book, has gone through this series of training by this master wizard, Dumbledore, and, and what Harry is very frustrated about is that although Dumbledore is, um, uh, you could say, training him and, and informing him, there's a lot that Dumbledore is leaving secret. There's a lot that seemingly Harry is just left to sort of guess at. He doesn't, you know, Dumbledore seems like he could just unveil all the secrets and just let Harry in on all that's going on, and he doesn't do it. And Harry's very frustrated. Why are you telling me this much when you really could tell me more? And, and Dumbledore is just, is really almost kind of avoiding Harry um, in, in some of those things. So Harry thinks, well, he's just going to have to uh, leave school. He's going to have to. Um, he thinks he's a danger to his friends. He's he's trying to figure certain things out on his own, and uh, and so he's he's just about to to run away and uh, leave school, and um, and here's where this really interesting uh, conversation comes into play. So I'm going to read. Uh, Harry's about to run away, and the book says that well, if he had to do it, he thought there was no point hanging around. Uh, and he thinks he's going to have to run home to his aunt and uncle who, who, who are just really pretty uh, vicious towards him. So he, the book says, trying with all his might not to think how the Dursleys were going to react when they found him on their doorstep six months earlier than they had expected. He strode over to his trunk, slammed the lid shut, and locked it, and then glanced around automatically for Hedwig, his owl, uh, before remembering that she was still at Hogwarts. Well, her cage would be one less thing to carry. He seized one end of his trunk and had dragged it halfway th- toward the door when a sneaky voice said, Running away, are we? And he looked around. Phineas Nigellus had appeared upon the canvas of his portrait and was leaning against the frame, watching Harry with an amused expression on his face. Now, you have to understand, in Harry Potter, uh, the, the people in the portraits come to life. All right? And they can move back and forth between the portraits on the wall. So here's this uh, this. Uh, former professor who's dead, but he lives in the portrait, okay? And, he's, and he's, he sees Harry uh, about to run away. Not running away, no, said Harry shortly, dragging his trunk a few more feet across the room. I thought, said Phineas Nigellus, stroking his pointed beard, that to belong in Grif- Gryffindor House, you were supposed to be brave. It looks to me as though you would have been better off in my own house. We Slytherins are brave, yes, but not stupid. For instance, given the choice, we will always choose to save our own necks. It's not my own neck I'm saving, said Harry tersely, tugging 
the trunk over a patch of particularly uneven, moth-eaten carpet right in front of the door. Oh, I see, said Phineas Nigel, still stroking his beard. This is no cowardly flight. You are being noble. Harry ignored him. His hand was on the doorknob when Phineas Nigellus said lazily, I have a message for you from Albus Dumbledore. Harry spun around. What is it? Stay where you are. I haven't moved, said Harry, his hand still on the doorknob. So what's the message? I have just given it to you, said Phineas Nigellus smoothly. Dumbledore says, stay where you are. Why? said Harry eagerly, dropping the end of his trunk. Why does he want me to stay? What else does he say? Nothing whatsoever, said Phineas Nigellus, raising a thin black eyebrow as though he found Harry impertinent. Harry's temper rose to the surface like a snake rearing from long grass. He was exhausted. He was confused beyond measure. He had experienced terror, relief, and then terror again in the last 12 hours, and still Dumbledore did not want to talk to him. So that's it, is it, he said loudly. Stay there. That's all anyone could tell me to do after I got tacked by those dementors, too. Just stay put while the grown-ups sort it out, Harry. We won't bother telling you anything, though, because your tiny little brain might not be able to cope with it. You know, said Phineas Nigellus, even more loudly than Harry, this is precisely why I loathed being a teacher. This is brilliant. Young people are so infernally convinced that they are absolutely right about everything. Okay, here it goes. Has it not occurred to you, my poor puffed up popinjay, that there might be an excellent reason why the headmaster of Hogwarts is not confiding every detail of his plans to you? Have you never paused while feeling hard done by to note that following Dumbledore's orders has never yet led you into harm? No, no, like all young people, you are quite sure that you alone feel and think. You alone recognize danger. You alone are the only one clever enough to realize what the Dark Lord may be planning. He is planning something to do with me then, said Harry swiftly. Did I say that, said Phineas Nigellus, idly examining his silk gloves? Now, if you will excuse me, I have better things to do than to listen to an adolescent agonizing. Good day to you. And he strolled into his frame and out of sight. Fine, go then, Harry bellowed at the empty frame, and tell Dumbledore thanks for nothing. Okay, that's probably enough. Um, I, I think, I think um, that's a pretty remarkable assessment about... Someone who obviously they want to know, they have questions about who they are. They have questions about what they're supposed to be doing. They have questions about the life they've been called to lead. And they feel like somebody has the answers, and yet they're not telling them those answers. And yet, here comes along this you know, older and wiser person to say, hasn't it occurred to you that what he has told you has never led you into harm. Don't you think he might have good reasons for only telling you what he knows? For only telling you what you need to know so far? Not everything he knows. You see the difference? Okay. You and I are regularly in situations in life where we feel like we need to have 
all the answers. Where we feel like if God would just pull back the curtain and fill me in on all the details, that that would make figuring out my journey in life so much easier. And then it would be good for, for it to occur to us or for somebody to remind us and tell us, you know, maybe God has good reasons for keeping the secrets that he keeps, for only letting us in on what he has let us in on. And, and, and then to realize that based on what he has revealed for us, he has never led us astray or let us down. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 2. Book of Exodus chapter 2. And we're going to get a glimpse of a situation where it seems as though God had become fairly uninformed. It almost seemed like God had just stopped being God. It almost seemed like He had just taken His hands off the wheel. And, and it probably seemed to God's people like that's exactly what had happened because He had revealed seemingly so little to them. Look at Exodus 2, starting in verse 23. You have here uh, God's people, the nation of Israel, in a foreign land in Egypt. And we read this, starting in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. They groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. So that would be the condition of Israel. God's people, they're, they're in slavery and they're crying out for help. Now, how long did they cry out for help? Yeah, we don't know exactly, but do you think it was a short amount of time? I think it was for years and years that they're crying out for help. So they're seeking direction, and it's like the Lord is not giving it to them. You know, Lord, isn't something, you know, aren't you going to act? Aren't you going to do something? Aren't you going to inform us one way or another? They're crying out for help. And then we read this. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. That's the hinge of the whole thing. So verse 24, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And here's verse 25, I love this verse. God saw the people of Israel, and God what? And God knew. He knew. He didn't just... Realized right then and there, he had known all along. 
God knew. How did he know or why did he know? Because he is omniscient. He's all-knowing. So does that mean that he only knew their situation when they cried to him for help? He knew their situation even through all those times that they were crying and it was like he hadn't heard. He knew their situation. He knew their situation before they went into it. He knew that they were going to be sent into slavery. He would promised it to, to Abraham. But he heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant, his promise with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What was he going to do with this people? He was going to make them a great nation. He saw them and he knew. He knew all along. Okay, I'm going to go through some of these passages and then we're going to, we're going to make some, some uh, lesson, lessons for ourselves, some observations that we can apply as lessons. So he knew their situation. As, as, as dark and as dim, he knew. He hadn't acted yet, but he knew. Now, go to chapter 3 and verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. Moses, who had been in Egypt but had fled, was now out in the wilderness, and this God who knew was appearing to Moses at a burning bush. And here's what the Lord said. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. And then what does he say? I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of a land, out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The Lord knew their sufferings and He had a purpose, He had a plan to deliver them from their sufferings, to deliver them from the Egyptians. But His plan to deliver them couldn't be accomplished unless they first were in that suffering, right? Like there's no deliverance from suffering if there's no suffering in the first place. So he knew their sufferings and he knew of his plan to deliver them. I have come down to deliver them. So go down now to verse 15. Same chapter, verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So go and gather the elders of, the, elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt 
to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. All right, so here's, here's, here's the Lord telling Moses again, I've observed what's going on with them. Tell them that. Okay, so Israel's doing all this crying out to God. Do they, do they even at this point realize that God hears them? Maybe not. Like, they're probably still wondering, does God even know what's going on with this? Okay? But now Moses is going to, or now God is going to Moses and saying, okay, I know what's going on, and I'm coming down to deliver them. But then what does he tell Moses? You go to them and tell them that I know. So, so how's Israel going to know that God knows? Moses has to go and be the messenger. So the people are going to find out that the Lord knows their situation, that He has a purpose to deliver them. They're going to know His name, and they're going to know His promise. All right, so let's look at what happens when Moses actually brings this message. So go to Exodus chapter 4. And uh, the very end of chapter 4, starting in verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, now who's Aaron? He's right over there. Who's, who's Aaron in here? Moses' brother. Why does Aaron need to go? Why does the Lord show up to Aaron? Because uh, Aaron's too, Moses is too scared. Right. Yeah, Moses needed Aaron, right? So, so you know, even when Moses hears this lesson, we didn't, we didn't read the whole encounter, but, you know, Moses has all these objections Okay, Lord, this is all great information, but if I'm your spokesman, the message might not get through. So even Moses needed help delivering the message. God knew that Moses needed Aaron, so the Lord said to Aaron, verse 27, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. So God knew that Moses needed Aaron, and God knew that Moses and Aaron needed these words from the Lord. So, verse 29, Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Remember, that's what, who they'd been commanded to go to. So now they've got all the elders with them. In verse 30, And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. So finally, these elders of the people of Israel, what are they finally understanding for maybe the first time since they've been in slavery? That God knows their situation, right? God knew that they needed to know that He knew their situation. All of them needed these words from the Lord and these works from the Lord. So he spoke not just the words, but also the signs, these promises, these things that Moses, remember the, that Moses had been able to do at the bush. And then look at the difference that it made. Verse 31. And the people, what? Verse 31. The people believed. 
And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. When the people saw that God knew their situation, that was enough for them to believe and to worship. He hadn't even acted yet. He hadn't, he hadn't delivered them yet. You know, he hadn't, he hadn't fulfilled any of these promises yet. But they knew that he knew, and it was enough for them to believe and to worship. All, all of the rescuing would come in the next, you know, ten chapters. Through all the plagues, and then through the final plague where Pharaoh sets them free, but then also at the sea after Pharaoh chases them down. And, and by the way, did this belief and this worship, was this like a constant spiritual high for them? Like, did they just worship continually from then on? No, they, they you know, roller coaster, right? I mean, they, they, were, they were in awe of God one second and then doubtful of Him the next. They were, they were praising Him and then, and then, you know, denying Him or questioning Him. You know, all up and down. And, and a lot of it is circumstantial. You know, they're more concerned with their circumstances. But, but I do think it's significant here that when they believed that God knew their situation, that was a comfort to them. They knew at least that their crying out to Him hadn't been in vain. Okay, so let's, let's, let's think about it. Let's see how maybe some of this um, would play into some situations maybe that you're facing now, um, maybe you're facing things personally or within your family or at school or at a job um, that you feel like, I wonder if God even knows about this or I wonder if there's even anything that, that God is going to do about this. And I'm not here to promise you that God's going to deliver in exactly the way that you want Him to. But I am here to tell you that God knows about it. And, and I want the fact that God knows about it to be a comfort to you. He knows your reproach, if we can call it that. And when you cry to Him about it, He hears those cries. This God hasn't changed. You know, His, His, His purposes, His covenant, His promises, His name, all those things are still the same. And He is as worthy of your belief and your worship as He was of the people of Israel... Even if whatever all the great things he's going to do in your life, even if they're still ahead of you, right? All this great deliverance, this is still ahead of Israel and they're worshiping him before they're fully delivered. So maybe whatever deliverance might come for you, maybe it's down the road. Maybe the greatest thing God is going to do for your life is years ahead of you. I don't know. But he's not 
worthy to be worshipped then. He's worthy to be worshipped now because He knows. And He has a plan. And what God did for Israel, He has done for all of us. And you see this specifically through two people in the New Testament. So, go to Luke chapter 1. Go to Luke chapter 1. We'll summarize most of this, but I want to point out a few things in these, in these verses. Luke chapter 1, you have the story of a couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is a priest. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, his wife, is, uh, is childless. You read in uh, chapter 1 and verse 6 that they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So this is, you would, you would, we could call this a reproach for them. This is a, this is a difficulty. This is a trial. This apparently is a, uh, a lifelong problem that, that they want to have children and they've not been able to even though they've honored the Lord with their lives. And maybe they think, you know, God just let this one slip. But, they're visited, uh, Zechariah is visited by an angel who promises a son, and Zechariah in verse 18 asks this. He says to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. So I think it's probably like he's asking, how can I know that God knows this? How can I know that God knows this? Now, it's interesting that instead of uh, answering the question, the angel just says, you know what, because you're even asking it, uh, you're just not going to be able to talk for several months. And And so sure enough, he doesn't. But then if you go down to verse 24, and it does... Uh, It does happen. She does conceive. Verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. To take away my reproach. All right? To, To lift my burden. It's almost like she's saying, He finally heard us. He finally knows. And then you know that Zechariah feels the same way because when you go to the end of chapter 1, here's how it reads. So go to Luke 1 and start in verse 67. After the child is born, we read that his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now let's stop there. What was one of the things that the Lord had promised to do to Moses? I've observed what's happening in Egypt and I will visit them. And I will deliver them. So, the same kind of presence of God and delivering that he had promised to Moses, he's now giving not just to Israel, but to all people. 
He has visited and redeemed his people. In verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his prophets from of old. And here's the promises. That we should be what? Saved from our enemies. What does that sound like? Almost like being delivered from the Egyptians, right? Saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. That's why God has visited his people. In verse 72, to show mercy, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Again, this, this sounds like the promises God made, right? He said, he told Moses, um, I'm the God of Abraham. I remembered my covenant with Abraham. Then to verse 73, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So through this visiting his people, he was saving them from their enemies. He was remembering his covenant so that they could serve him. He was showing that all along he had known their situation. Alright, so I'm here, I'm here to tell you, though I might not know every individual situation, okay? I'm here to tell you that God knows. He has known. He knew what Israel needed. And while you might be waiting for a specific visit from the Lord, understand He has already visited His people. He has already redeemed His people. He has already shown mercy to us. He has already provided deliverance from the hand of our enemies. This, uh, this is part of what it means for us to be comforted by God's omniscience. God knows. And it's a comforting thing. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be much less um, assuring if we were uncertain whether, <laughs> whether or not God was aware like, do you think God knows about this? I don't know. Like, I, like I really, I probably wouldn't sleep at night. Okay? So, you know, there's, there's, certain, there's certain things that happen in your life that when, when it's a big enough deal, you just want to tell people, right? You're like, I just, if other people just know about this, I'll feel better, right? Okay? You don't have to inform God. You don't ever have to be like, I hope God caught that. Okay? He knows. That's a great comfort. So, so when, we're, when we're trying to spend some time over the next few days digging deep in Scripture about the, the expanse of God's nature and His characteristics and His attributes, we could go pretty deep in the fact that God knows all things. I just want you to be comforted by the fact that He knows you. And He knows your situation. And He knows our situation. 
He knows our church's situation. He always has, and he's got it under control. So, just want to read, and you can turn there with me from Isaiah 40. Just want to read this, because this is kind of the, the prayer of the, the whole retreat here. With that, just, I think, very foundational and basic understanding that God knows. You know, another way you could say it, I think, is just God gets it. But Isaiah 40, and I'm going to read starting in verse 9. One of the challenges I hope you'll take away from, from the talks this week is... As you and I hopefully grow in our knowledge of God, that we would declare that knowledge, that we'd share it, that we would tell others to behold the God that we're hoping to behold this, this week. So, Isaiah puts it this way, starting in uh, Isaiah 40, starting in verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. I know it's good to close messages with as much practical application as you can. I think the most practical thing that you and I can apply is to do what Isaiah says here. Behold your God. Just look at Him. Just think about Him. Just be... You know, it, it's... A, it's okay to have your mind blown by God and to just let it be that way. Behold your God and go up to a high mountain and declare that to the people. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for the comfort that you know. Again, I love the way that Moses, the author, wrote about the situation of his own people. God saw the condition of his people, and God knew. So we're glad that you know our situation, we're glad that you know our needs. We're glad that you know us. 
we're glad that your knowledge is not limited to what we tell you because we don't tell you enough. We're thankful you don't rely on information that we need to give you. You are the source of all information. You know. What a comfort, what a, what a great mystery that is. Lord, we, we tend to be the type, uh, like we read in, in the story, we, we want all the answers. We want it now. We want all the mysteries cleared up. But Lord, let us be comforted by the fact that what you have let us know about yourself is enough. You've never led us astray and your plan, your knowledge is not limited just to what you tell us. So let us be reminded it's okay to be mesmerized by the mysteries, but let us be comforted that even when we don't know, you know. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.